My name is Sam Linnett. I am a um, trail runner, uh, backcountry skier, uh, dabble on mountain biking as well. I'm an athlete on the Protect Our Winners Athlete Alliance. Um, I'm also an attorney. Uh, I have my own small law firm here in central Idaho, and I'm a, a city council member for the city of Haley, where I live. So um, I get to do a lot of outdoor adventures as much as I can. And then um, also have a, a regular job that trying to make it all work. And I get to do some of like the policy work that Pow talks about at the, the local level, which is really fun. So. Cool. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, so my name is Neil Leroux. Uh, I'm based in Reno, Nevada, and I'm a professor of atmospheric science at the University of Nevada, Reno. And uh, I'm a, a backcountry skier, mountain biker, a mediocre runner. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of my work focuses on on wildfires and um, in the Western United States. And what initially got me engaged in, in all of these topics really was the um, was the skiing end for me, the, the feeling of a sense of loss about about winter. But increasingly, it's become about summer for me and about these wildfire impacts that we're having, the, the extreme smoke and Kind of threats to the the places that we live and just kind of this loss of the sense of happiness in in the summer that's kind of coming up coming along with that and so my research uh, i get to spend a lot of time going out and looking at these these high impact wildfires and it's, it's been quite sobering over the last decade seeing how how things have evolved so quickly um to the to the state that we're in now um so yeah that's that's kind of where i'm coming from on on all of this Cool. I guess speaking of that, Neil, um, we're just going to jump right into this. Like, I think a lot of people in the outdoor industry associate like Protect Our Winners or PAL with simply with skiing and like snowpack and all that. But like you bringing up the forest fires and everything, like how does PAL, I guess kind of how does PAL or how should people associate PAL with summers instead of just winter? And like, how are those things correlated to each other? Yeah, I can take a, a little stab at that. You know, I think I think at, at its core, it's about protecting the places, the seasons, um, the environment that we love that, you know, some of us either make our livelihood from or derive our kind of sense of personal well-being and happiness from. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's what's what's the season that matters to you where, you know, where where does it resonate for you? And um, so, you know, yeah, I think snow was the obvious one, right? Warming temperatures typically lead to a decrease in snowpack, but um, increasingly, you know, that's a, it's a year round thing that we need to be thinking about all of the seasons, um, how a, a changing climate is, is impacting all of these things. And unfortunately, some of these things are, we're kind of just becoming aware of how profound these impacts are. Um, this, this summer, unfortunately has been really a kind of wake up call i think for for the need to focus on on not just that winter part but on uh, the the whole calendar um with like the canadian wildfires that we're having this year these huge smoke events spanning continents and you know day in and, and day out sam do you think to add to that yeah i mean i think you know protect our winners started um as or started when Jeremy Jones, a professional snowboarder, founded it back in, in 2012. And I think it was focused on very much on this direct, like he's a professional snowboarder. He needs winters for his sport. There's a th climate change is a threat to winters, but 
you know, as Neil uh, was talking about the, the climate change affects all of our seasons and winter specifically, in, at least in the West where I'm at in Idaho, depending on how much snow we get in the winter and what our winter looks like, it can have ripple effects through our summer and through our fall. And from an athlete perspective, you know, if you're trying to put on a race, if you're trying to organize an event um, or plan a trip, right? Um, that kind of unpredictability and that variability in what the environment's gonna look like can, be can make things really difficult. It can mean, you know, climbing seasons being shortened or canceled. Um, it can mean smoke canceling races because it's unhealthy. It can mean you can't go outside for weeks or months on end. So, um, I mean, Protect Our Winners has winners in its name for sure, but it's definitely moved beyond just a kind of winter-focused um, organization. And I think that the impacts ripple through all the seasons. And, um, and I think, it's, yeah, it's, it's important. And it's been exciting to see the organization expand and, and talk about all of those impacts. Yeah. So I guess thinking of like wildfires and like summer, obviously like we all spend time outside, like I run and ride and do all, I don't ski actually, <laughs> which is kind of funny that we're talking. I, I hate winter, but um, <laughs> I hate winter in the sense that I just don't like being cold, <laughs> but I appreciate it for what it is and the beauty. But like, sure. um, I guess thinking like about wildfires and stuff, like growing up, it's just like out here in the West, like it's just kind of normal, right? Like we've always had wildfires. And like when I was a kid, I uh, grew up in Northern California out by Auburn and like, it's like super dry out there, obviously. And like now living in Arizona, we deal with a lot of fires and stuff as well. At least a lot of the impacts of them. But like, have they actually been increasing over the years? Or is this kind of like this normalcy bias that we have? Because like the West is dry, like historically, right? Like, especially compared to like the East Coast or the Midwest, like it's just a lot drier out here. So like, are we just kind of accustomed to having maybe like, maybe not as dry of like seasons now and it's been a little more wet like maybe growing up and now it's getting drier and is that like a normal cycle or like what's kind of the cyclical process of of fires out here in the west yeah that's that's a great point and i think it's it is important for people to understand you know fire is an intrinsic part of the western ecosystem like you said like around auburn every year no matter how much winter precipitation you get you know, those grasses are going to dry out. You're going to get those golden grasses that are, are going to support fires. And and those fires are an important part of that that landscape and ecosystem. And really throughout the West, that that's the case. But, you know, we've really seen like a radical shift in the, the kind and extent of fire that we're having. Something like an eightfold increase in like extreme wildfire behavior over the last decade. Um and really what's driving that is is the increased warmth and the increased aridity, um, meaning dryness uh, that, that comes along with that. And so, yeah, fire, fire's been here. It will be here indefinitely into the future. But the, the character of the fire, these extreme megafires, um, is, is really shifting and it's shifting really rapidly. And, and that has really far reaching um, consequences on the forests that we recreate in as well you know the forests that grow back after these really high impact events are going to look really different than the forests that were there beforehand they're going to be adapted to a different warmer and drier climate in the summer and so like one of the things that i feel here in, in the sierra nevada it, is that a little the shift in in some of these forest landscapes and thinking ahead um how how different they're going to look 
Um, so yeah, back back to kind of the the core core point there. Yeah, there there are big fire seasons and the low fire seasons. Fires fires here to stay, but that's really not what we're seeing. We're seeing this this radical shift in in high intensity, high impact uh, fires throughout the western uh, U.S. Yeah, how far back do your data go on that? Considering like, because people always say like, oh, well, it's normal or whatever, but like do you have data back like thousands of years or is it just like eightfold increase over the past 50 years or like i'm just kind of curious about that yeah that's that's a great question i mean there's a lot of different disciplines that get involved in in this and so there's anything from what you could call the the paleoclimate record where people try to reconstruct the frequency of fire through things like tree rings and sediments and lake beds um and trying to understand you know, historically back before modern recorded history, how much fire was on the landscape. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of complexity and, and nuance there. I'd say big picture, what what we kind of infer from that sort of data is that, there, in, in fact, in the past, there's been a lot of fire. Um, and if you think about it in terms of acreage, um, maybe even at times more total acreage burning. And part of that would even involve indigenous practices of burning the land um but the again it's the the severity piece that that we're seeing so it's not just about the area burned but how that area is burning and all signals really point toward this increase over over the last few decades toward these really high severity fires um and so you know it there there is some nuance there in in understanding all of all of these things but we have a direct kind of causal mechanism the increased heat increased dryness driving these these really high impact fires so that's kind of the part that I, that i i focus on because i think it's the clearest signal it's not necessarily the total number of acres burned but how those acres are burning um and of course we have a lot more modern tools now to look at this satellite data and infrared data from aircraft and maybe kind of to your point that that data only goes back a handful of decades where we can really have good insights but even just in that time interval the shifts that we're seeing are, are really profound yeah no that makes a lot of sense um let's talk a little bit more about like just climate change in general like i think there's always like this divisive thing of like like there's natural climate shifts over the years obviously but then also man-made like climate change and if for whatever reason it's very politicized and people want to either say like it's not possible or it's not happening or it's happening or whatever so like how can you guys weigh in on that like I guess, what are the differences between like like natural like cyclical things in the climate versus like our human impact by just basically being humans and living and i guess our technology because obviously that plays a plays a huge part in it yeah i'm, I'm happy to to jump on that say if you want but i, I don't want to <laughs> I'll, I'll let, yeah, go for it. I'll see if yeah. I can add anything uh, helpful <laughs> later. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I. so again, I think, you know, people, people's experience, right? We know that there's big changes year to year in the weather on planet Earth. And that's what we would call interannual variability. And that's kind of what we expect, right? A lot of variation. One year is wet, one year is dry, one year is hot, one year is cool. But we we have the tools to really be able to like zoom out and look at how these changes happen over over longer periods of time and what what's driving big kind of trends in the climate system. So if you zoom way out, there's like changes in Earth's orbit that we understand 
and that can drive huge swings in Earth's climate, induce ice ages or intervening warm periods. And we can look at that over millions of years. Um, that's not what we're, we're seeing right now. We have basically no change in the kind of orbital or like the intensity of the sun's energy that are entering the climate system. And, and we know that, we know that really well. Instead, what we have right now is a really rapid global scale warming that's happening in response to the just abundance of carbon dioxide that we're pumping in to the atmosphere. And maybe kind of what you're getting at, right? Like we all contribute to that. That's just baked into our kind of societal structure right now, which also highlights the need for systemic large scale change in the way we we do things. Um, but yeah, so we, we can say with really remarkably high level of confidence that the, the shifts that we've seen um, over the last hundred years, in particular, the accelerating kind of changes over the last 30 years are really driven by human activity, the increase in carbon dioxide, trapping more of Earth's uh, radiant energy, our heat energy that's trying to escape out into space. And uh, that that's the driver. And, and we really know that. And I, th I think it's really important for people to take take that away that the, the tools and the job of scientists is, is to understand the world that we live in and to go beyond that you know, vague sense that yes, there's there's changes, there's cyclical variations in Earth's climate system, but to actually understand what's happening right now and why, and and we really we know that answer, and it's it's human caused climate change driven by our emissions of carbon dioxide. I guess how how do you know that it's not just a correlation versus the causation? Like, just say for example, like let's just say we are in some like part of that cycle where there's like a natural trend to to have a warmer climate and just for yeah. whatever reason let's just say like we started producing a lot of carbon dioxide around that same time like how how can you say definitively that it's the carbon dioxide and not just a normal um, cycle yeah i'd say again it's the job of scientists to, to make measurements observations and experiments to to know these things right it's not just a oh i think this thing is happening we have to establish that and the really fundamental thing about carbon dioxide is that we can measure how much energy it absorbs. In fact, if we want a great example of this for me is if you want to know how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, the way you measure it is how much heat energy, infrared energy it absorbs. It's a direct measurement that, that we can make. Like if, um, if I set up a weather station that wants to measure carbon dioxide the way it, the way it does is it emits a little pulse of infrared energy and measures how much of that energy leaving um the emitter arrives at, at this point over here okay and the the amount that's going to get there um diminishes as you put more and more carbon dioxide into the air between these two little sensors so that's like a really direct measurement of exactly what's going on in the climate system um, we know what carbon dioxide does to infrared energy. We can measure it. Um, and then I guess maybe to the to the question of how do we know that it's not other elements of the the climate system just varying naturally, I guess again, measurements. We we make observations of those things. So we know how much solar energy is hitting the top of Earth's atmosphere. And if that isn't changing, 
but we have changes inside of the climate system. They're driven by basically things that we are doing to affect the way energy moves around in Earth's climate system. Um, and, in, and again, in this case, we, we know it's the carbon dioxide that's doing it. Um, we, we can measure it, I guess would, would be my answer. Derek, um, Neil alluded to this a little bit too, but I think, you know, one of the, the helpful things for me is to understand that like, there's not just one niche scientific area that's uh, coming to the conclusion that climate change is human caused. I mean, this is interdisciplinary across different, um, different types of scientific disciplines, different types of researchers. They're all measuring very, very specific or, or conducting research on very, very specific questions within their discipline. And the strong, strong general consensus is this kind of consistent human impact, human impacts, human actions, human contributions of um, uh, CO2 are contributing to climate change. And I think as Neil was talking about, you know, you can, you can validate those theories in a, in a multitude of ways at, at, at a lot of different scales from this kind of, uh, from ice cores, uh, from other kind of like paleo science to laboratory experiments that show how um, CO2 and other greenhouse gases trap heat. So, you know, and this has been going on for, for decades. This is not a new research area. It's not new science. It's science that's been built off of um, previous research and previous questions for decades and decades, um, if not centuries. Um, so I think that kind of when you start looking at the, the totality of research out there uh, and the totality of kind of the support for um, the conclusion that human actions are contributing to climate change, it, it's really hard to, refu to refute and say, you know, I, I think it's something else. Like that just doesn't become a reasonable conclusion uh, when you look at everything that's out there. So let's talk more about the man-made stuff then, because like, I don't know, like I think it's interesting in the outdoor industry and like, like I've been running since I was in college and whatever, like um, been writing for a long time as well. But like, I, I think in the outdoor industry, it's really interesting that that we're always outside doing things and like I'm just the same as anybody else. Like I, I run, right? I was just telling you that I drove up to Idaho for um, for a race. I drove my truck up there. We rode bikes and, and whatever. But like, I guess what is the impact of the outdoor industry is kind of what I'm getting at because clearly we're buying a lot of stuff. You go to the outdoor retailer show, it's like new products every year. Everything's covered in like Gore-Tex, which has like forever chemicals in it. We're spending a lot of time outside. We're driving, we're we're flying like UTMB just happened and like how many thousands of people out there UTMB racing plus like all their crew members and everything. Like, I guess, so what is the impact then of us as outdoor athletes and whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Neil, can I take this one? Yeah. Sorry. That's all you Sam. That's it. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, we all have our impact on the climate and on the environment, right? I mean, you could talk about, you know, water quality, land use, whatever it might be, like, we all have an impact. And um, the individual impact when it's aggregated is, it can be really significant. What POW is focusing on um, is, I mean, one, being aware and understanding our own individual climate impacts, but really we're advocating for policies at the systemic level that are going to change how we impact the climate. And so, I think, you know, 
individual action is really important, but the most important thing that we can work on and we can try to change right now are, are how our systems are designed and in a way that won't keep perpetuating the climate, uh, the climate problem and climate change. So that means, you know, reducing our dependency on um, technologies or systems that require a lot of um, CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. And, and that is not gonna be solved by individual action alone. It's gonna be solved by broad political policy, economic policy and cultural change. Um, and, and none of that stuff changes quickly. There is no silver bullet for a lot of that. Um, but we all, I mean, we all have an impact and I think recognizing your impact can, can connect you to that system and see how we all exist within that system that kind of inevitably results in uh, a warming climate and changing climate in a way we've never seen in the history of this, of this planet. Um, but I think it can also, you can take that next step and say, okay, well, if I really want my individual action to change, um, or if I want these systems to have a different impact than, the, um, than they are right now, like, what do I do? And that's where getting involved politically, um, voting, advocating for, for uh, climate-friendly policies um, are really important beyond, and you can have a lot more impact than your, than your individual impact and not taking that flight or getting an electric vehicle um, or whatever it might be. Those things are still important. It's not an either or. Um, but that systemic, that systemic change is really what we're what we're trying to work towards and advocate for. Yeah, and I would I would add to what I what Sam's saying that you know, in like from a scientific perspective, like looking at the scale of the problem, the scale of the problem demands this large scale response, the systemic response. Not again, it's not that individual action can't be important and isn't important. But like it, it really needs to be, you know, an integrated kind of society wide response to transitioning away from a high carbon intensity um, kind of economic engine to, to something that's that's going to give us, um, you know, a solution. And personally, I, like one of the things that I like about that is it's somewhat less guilt ridden perspective on, you know, our individual role. We do all contribute you know, in everything that we do in the fabric of our society to, you know, to all of this. Um, but we can also all contribute through this kind of large scale approach to to affecting the the change and, and the solution to it. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with everything Sam just said. Yeah. Do you feel like the, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to add a little bit of like my own personal story, because uh, this kind of this question around like individual uh, impacts or responsibility, I mean, it, it, it's kind of related to what I see as one of the, the bigger issues around climate change. When I was in college, I was studying environmental science and I wanted to be a high school science teacher. And I was kind of operating under this assumption that like, if only more people knew like about the problem, um, then they could take action to, to fix it. And I think there's absolutely truth in that. Like knowledge is power. People need to be educated about, you know, climate science and climate change and the impacts. But as I got further along in school, I started to kind of understand and realize that like the science was, was pretty well understood. Like climate change is not a scientific problem. Like there's not a lack of scientific understanding that is that is preventing us from solving climate change. It is primarily a, 
a political and economic and a legal problem. And that was really like, that was probably the primary impetus for me to go to law school and, and kind of change career paths. Cause I wanted to understand this system that I didn't understand in the context of, you know, how do we get this broad societal change? Like what are these limiting factors for solving this issue? Um, and how do these systems that are preventing us from making real change, how do they operate? Yeah, so I guess thinking of that, then, like, I guess just be kind of realistic. Like, it's it's like if I drive my truck to go get groceries versus riding my bike, like, that basically has zero impact when you consider, like, the U.S. military, like, China building multiple power plants a month, essentially, coal power plants a month, India going through some sort of economic revolution, like, like all these little things that we can do, like, and I get what you're saying, but it feels like they have zero impact. Like me recycling my can of tomatoes, like washing it down, taking all this time, seems like a like not even a drop in the bucket compared to like like Biden flying around or like all these world leaders, the WEF going to Davos every year, or like I was the same, like China's coal power plants and stuff. So like, like I guess really why why should we even like try? And this sounds like a really like defeatist, like black pill question, but like why do all these things when it's all just offset by what other people are doing, specifically governments around the world? Ooh, yeah, that's that's a tough one, right? Because it's like, you know, there is, a, again, I think from a scientific perspective, that there's a, a grain of truth in, in what you're saying, right? That these these tiny things don't add up to... To the big thing especially if it requires like you individually to make sacrifices or to do these things to affect this outcome but um but if you change that and we're to think about supporting you know taking that energy from washing out the can let's say and redirecting that toward trying to influence um our political system to build a grid infrastructure that would support the you know massive renewable energy resources that we know we can already generate um you know kind of exerting that in a in a political way i'm not saying you don't do those other things because i think i think some of us want to do those things that feel good in many other ways um kind of being a steward or a participant in kind of affecting a, a better world but you know if if we can instead of making it about that individual choice that you have to make right now this moment if every time you flip the light switch, that energy is coming from renewable infrastructure, from renewable energy sources, that's like where the really big bang for the buck is gonna gonna come from. And so, you know, whether it's supporting the, you know, the town council or uh, larger scale kind of policy making, and this is something that I think it, it really sets power apart from other organizations is that participation in the the legislative process and trying to influence these kind of bigger projects, these things that can really move the needle on these things. Whereas again, personally that, that, you know, these few choices that we're making on a day-to-day -day basis, they can be important if the whole world was doing that at that moment would have a huge impact, but we, we have another path, I think, to, to accomplish that. Um, Sam, you probably have more, more insight into that than I do. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a point well made, Derek. Like in and it's it's hard. Like the individual actions, like you know, I was just saying, I mean, this is a systemic problem, right? And so like our individual actions matter and like those alone 
our individual like individuals making individual choices are not going to solve the climate change and like climate change is the result of like an aggregate of individual choices and actions within a system that's been designed to or that necessarily requires the emission of a bunch of greenhouse gases so like your example of you know taking your truck to the grocery store or riding your bike um i mean i'd love for you and everyone to make that choice to ride their bike but the practical reality is that's not going to happen unless we have infrastructure and systems in place that make it easy to walk ride your bike or take the bus to the grocery store um on a large large scale so like I'm really thankful in my town here in Haley, Idaho, you know, we have a really good bike path and pedestrian pathway um, system, and it's gotten really good in the last five years. Um, and we have a great bus system that's fare free. So like there are no fares for people to ride the bus. So it makes it a lot more accessible for people to not take their car, to ride their bike, to walk. Um, and we also have like cultural issues around that when in the winter time, streets get plowed before a bike paths. So like we still look as a culture, as a, as a society as like walking and biking is more like recreation or secondary to using our cars. And that's where like, I think the systemic issue the, the, is really where we, we can get the most change. And if you change the system, if you change that infrastructure, that results in individual changes, individual choices being a lot easier to make, or just, you know, people having to make those individual choices, because now the system's set up to walk, bike, um, not take your car, use public transportation, use renewable energy. Um, and so, I mean, it, I don't think it's kind of an either or, uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's both, and they're, they're interrelated and always will be, uh, but that's where the, the broad, large-scale policy um, and, and culture uh, is really going to have to change for climate change to be solved. And I, to be solved, and, I, and the timeline, you, we have to look at how long it took for us to get here, right? And it took decades um, of emitting greenhouse gases and establishing systems that we have right now to, to get to this point. And I think we can solve it faster, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in one election term um or election cycle presidential term congressional term whatever it is it's going to take a uh, long-term consistent change in how people uh view the environment view climate change uh their relation to it their choices around it so i guess speaking of like public transport when you say it's free fair or fair free this is taxpayer funded right yeah absolutely uh, taxpayer funded. Um, I can't remember exactly where the grants come from. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a combination of local funds because we have a local, it's a, it's a kind of a countywide uh, public transit system. Um, but a lot of federal, a lot of federal funds to make that happen. And I mean, we have federal funds supporting lots of programs and industries like the oil and gas industry um, with billions of dollars. And if we reallocated even just a fraction of those funds towards things like clean energy or public transportation, the impact would be significant. And that's where this slow but consistent march towards changing that balance um, is, re is really important. And that's where you, we can really affect change. So let's talk about renewable energy then, because it's, it's obviously a very like big thing, this giant push for EVs. 
and like just using solar and wind um, basically just getting away from like fossil fuels is like such a huge topic right now and like like right now like i'm outside using solar power in my starlink system right like i'm charging a, a battery via solar panels and it's very inefficient like and it's just kind of wild like how inefficient the solar panels are like obviously they're just couple hundred watts on my truck it's not like i have some like massive solar farm but like like where i grew up there's solar farms everywhere i was i'm in utah right now i was just on a film shoot in central utah and there's a giant wind farm but like i was reading something the other day and like i don't remember the specific details on it but it was basically saying that like for like i don't know what was it exactly like it's like the amount of power needed to build a wind farm is not even recouped in the actual wind farm plus all these parts are like made of fossil fuels so like what are your guys' thoughts on that as far as renewable energy is actually being one sustainable and two just just efficient i guess hmm. yeah um i don't know sam if you have any specific um details instrument I, I could i could take a little bit of a stab at it i Personally, I'd be pretty wary of people floating statistics like that, that like energy into that infrastructure is, um, you know, kind of negates its its overall value. I mean, th there's something that uh, a term that climate scientists use sometimes is something called intrinsic energy, the amount of energy needed to make anything. Right. And like you can measure that for different different materials like aluminum cans or like pretty bad like the amount of energy that goes into making an aluminum can and i you know I, I drink a lot of seltzer water and i'm like oh my gosh this is like i i need to i need to change my <laughs> aluminum can footprint in a hurry right now yeah me too <laughs> uh you know but um so i think some of those you know i always i always try to think like where where's this information coming from like who's who's putting these things out there because i think sometimes there's some bad faith arguments that get, that get floated around. I mean, there's intrinsic energy in everything that we produce. Um, it, whether it's a coal plant or the materials that go into producing uh, a wind turbine or the solar panels. And, you know, in, and I don't want to dismiss that stuff because there's, there's important things. Like we need to do a good job in um, harnessing the mineral resources needed to produce batteries, right? Like, I mean, I think you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you say battery tends to be acid and lots of terrible chemicals. And we, we need to think about all of those things. But um, we have a much more immediate pressing societal challenge right now. Like climate change is an existential threat for our society. And if we don't hit that, you know, head on right now, we're, we're going to see some really bad cascading effects over the coming coming decades and i this summer has kind of been eye-opening for that and um where, where i'm going with this is i i think it's really important to realize most of, most of the renewable infrastructure that we have is is good stuff it's these wind farms are ultimately part of a solution to a problem that we have um and the same with uh photovoltaics and our ability to harness the sun's energy um to to produce electricity and um, it's on us to do a, a good job building this new infrastructure that's that's gonna gonna support an energy transition. Um, but I, I think it would be a, a kind of unfortunate outcome for people to somehow 
walk away from from a conversation thinking that there's more harm than good coming out of most of these these renewable resources. I I don't think it's a genuine argument um, to to be honest with you. And uh, I I don't have the statistics in in front of me to to kind of fly on on screen right now. But uh, Sam, I don't I don't know if you have any any input yeah. on that. I mean. <clears throat> I don't have anything, any specifics to your example, Derek. Um, but what I've, what I've seen is that people oftentimes conflate um, like having any impact as being worse than the status quo, right? Or like people are unable to kind of, to, to really engage with the nuance between, okay, what's the, what's the greenhouse gas or carbon impact or environmental impact of a wind farm versus an oil and gas, like a natural gas power plant. Um, no one is, is trying to pretend that any of these large scale power generating uh, projects don't have an impact. And our society will always have an impact, whether it's transportation using 100% electric vehicles um, or hydrogen vehicles or whatever kind of like theoretical um, future you can think of, there's always going to be an impact. I mean, we have like, we exist on this planet, not in isolation. Like we are connected to the environment um, in a myriad of different ways. So the discussion in my view is not really whether solar power farms or wind power or wind farms um, or oil, um, oil and gas infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, hydroelectric dams. It's not whether any of those have an impact, but it's what is that impact? And what consequences are we are we willing to to take um, to take on or not? And I think it's pretty well established that those clean energy technologies, well, they don't have well, they do have some impact. It's better than the existing fossil fuel technology when we're trying to address climate change. Same with electric vehicles. Batteries are a huge issue and need to be addressed. And how we dispose of them, recycle them, technology that we use, um, it's a huge issue. And it shouldn't be dismissed, but it doesn't negate um, the the climate change uh, benefit of that technology. And so that's where those the, that nuance becomes really, really important when we're talking about these these impacts. Do you feel like it's a little disingenuous or maybe even misleading to say that that's clean energy as far as like an electric vehicle goes, especially when most of the energy is not coming from, like, say, a quote-unquote clean energy source where it's probably coal or some sort of fossil fuel? I mean, I'll just jump in. I don't think it's disingenuous if, if you're willing to engage with the reality that, yeah, there's still an impact from plugging in your electric vehicle. And that an electric vehicle, unless you're getting your carbon from your, your carbon, your electricity from a carbon neutral source like solar panels on your house or some um, clean energy grid, um, it's really hard to know if you're 100% carbon neutral, but we don't need to be perfect, right? We need to make improvements. We need to get better. We need to do better than what we're doing right now. And so clean energy, if you if you wanna say, well, it's not clean because it's not 100% clean, I hear you. Like I that, that's a fair statement if that's what you wanna say, but you also have to recognize that when we're talking about clean energy, um, there is, a whole spectrum of what clean energy can mean or not mean. And it is not, it does not have to be a hundred percent perfect for it to be better than the current system, the current status quo that we have. 
Yeah, I, I really like that concept. I think that's something else that Powell has been really good at kind of putting out there as a concept for people to take away is allowing that imperfection, right? Is not feeling this. And I think it gets into that personal guilt of, you know, am I being like perfect when it comes to my impact on on the climate? And there isn't a perfect, there's a, there's a better and we can, you know, that better can actually solve the problem. Um, and, and we need to, we need to embrace that. And, um, yeah. And, and not, again, it's like, you don't want to dismiss, like, we have to be conscientious. We have to do a good job in all of these things. And it's not just about climate. I think that's maybe another distinction, an important distinction, like environmentalism versus climate. There is a very specific climate problem that again, is an existential threat to our society. Like we need to, <laughs> We need to solve that. Um, and then there's a broader scope of environmentalism. What's our total impact on on the environment around us? Um, and obviously we we need to we need to think about all of that um as, as we go forward. Um but but yeah, uh, allowing some level of imperfection, but embracing the better, I think is is a is a good path forward. Interesting. So like I don't know, I live in Arizona now and I don't know, like out there mining is a really big deal, like especially in southern Arizona. So like you drive certain areas, like even just like a couple hours outside of Phoenix and it's like massive strip mines for like like copper, for example. And like so have you guys ever been to like like a lithium mine or a cobalt mine, for example, and like seen the environmental impacts of that? I, I haven't personally I think my my experience with copper mines, mostly in gold mines at Nevada where I where I, well, I live right over the border in California, but spend most of my time in Nevada and, you know, mining is a huge part of the industry here and these giant, um, you know, open pit uh, mines, uh, you know, obviously there's a significant environmental footprint with any extractive in industry, you know, um, there's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Like even in like northern Nevada, there's a huge push for mining lithium up there. Apparently, there's a bunch of deposits, and also down like in Mexico and Bolivia and whatever. But it's it's really interesting, I guess, to see because I think there's a disconnect with people, and it's like I'm not saying this is you guys specifically, but just in general, from like what I hear in the outdoor world, and like everybody's like, oh, I bought my Tesla, like I'm saving the planet. It's like, yeah, but you do realize that there's an open pit mine somewhere with probably like slaves or slave labor, essentially digging up these minerals and people just kind of have this massive disconnect because I think it's kind of like with our food supply where we get so far removed from like, like seeing an animal die, but then we'll go buy beef at the grocery store or something. And you don't really see the actual like killing of that animal or the life cycle of it. You just kind of get it. So we're very far removed from these things. I know that happens with oil as well too, but like, I just find it really interesting, I guess, that as humans, we do that, like we can kind of like Put ourselves and like isolate ourselves from the actual issue and the problems and we just kind of reap the benefits and yeah maybe we hear things but we don't actually see like what's going on like example like my macbook i'm on right now like i'm using a macbook it's made in china and like i'm sure the people making it weren't paid that much money but here i am sitting outside my truck on starlink with my macbook <laughs> like living the dream right <laughs> yeah 100 percent. i mean it it's tough right like we all have our impact. And I think you're kidding yourself if like, oh, I bought my Tesla. And so like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna solve climate change. Or like, there's my action to solve it. I mean, one of the problems here is not just like adopting new technology, but it's, it's this economic and cultural system where like, 
we can't we can't keep using and throwing away resources and consuming and growing and growing and increasing our impact. I mean, so a great example of this is like our technologies around you know energy, energy production or transportation have increased or have, have improved like tremendously over the last you know several decades, right? Let's think since like the um, in, uh, agricultural revolution, right? Um, like we're more efficient at producing food. We're more efficient at getting from point A to point B. We have like this huge increase in efficiency, right? And electric vehicles are essentially that. They're an increase in efficiency for how we move from one place to the next um, when you're talking about like the greenhouse gas or, or carbon dioxide emissions. But if you only focus on that efficiency and you don't talk about creating systems that result in less like net emissions, right? or less um, total impact on the environment, then you're, you're not actually, I mean, you're lessening the, the rate of that increase, but you're not improving. You're not getting to the place where you want to be, right? So if I get like a car that has twice the gas mileage that I have right now, but I end up driving twice as much, like the net impact is zero, right? And so that's where like, we have to develop these systems that, result in people in, in our society, in our culture or community, country, whatever, our net impact overall is being less. And that can't just be solved with technological innovation. It's not just going to be solved with regulations. Um, it's not going to be solved with just individual choices. Like it is a truly systemic issue that's going to take um, policy changes, cultural changes um, on a huge scale. And it's going to take time to do that. But that's, that's, I think a worthwhile endeavor. And that's what Pow is certainly interested in being a part of. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we already have like, like, I think that's such a great example of the, you know, you drive twice as far because you have twice the efficiency. So your net impact is, um, you know, maybe even goes up or something, you know, in some of these systems. And it, it's really important to talk about. And I think it's also important, like, you know, part of like what we do when we have these conversations is kind of advocacy but also be real about, you know, these, we have a really large impact, but this is where systemic change really can, can work because an example would be like air pollution in the United States has gotten significantly better over the last century. Um, and yet we drive cars way more. Um, we have a, way more humans, um, but our net air pollution problems have actually decreased. The, the one thing that's going in the opposite direction is wildfire smoke. But like emissions and the kind of local and regional air quality that comes along with the emissions from vehicles, it has gotten way better. And it has gotten better through the process of regulation, scientific innovation, and kind of broad scale change, not necessarily individual action, right? We're still, we're driving our cars more than ever, probably, but LA's air quality has gotten way better over, over the last century. And again, that's that's kind of because we put the policies in place to make that possible. And I, I think we're sitting at the, the same point when it comes to, uh, in particular, the emissions that come from our, uh, our transportation sector and our energy production sector. You know, those are huge chunks of our total carbon emissions. They're not the whole thing, right? There's other things, there's food, there's agriculture, all sorts of stuff that, that comes along. Um, but it's like, where can we make an impact now? 
Like we need to do something. What's the low hanging fruit? How can we affect a change in the next decade that's going to have a, a significant impact? And um, ultimately, the renewable energy production really is the that is the low hanging fruit. We have the technology. Um, we have the resource, the sun and the wind to to be able to accomplish this. And now we just need kind of the political will and the infrastructure to deliver that to our society as, as a whole. And so I, I really like focusing on that. Like, where's the low hanging fruit? Where can we make a difference? It's, it's sitting right there in front of us. There's kind of kind of on topic, I guess, but kind of off topic. Like, what are you guys' thoughts then about about PAL sending athletes and ambassadors like all over the world, like to promote or to talk about climate change. Or for example, there was a race in Bhutan last year. I don't even know if it's like, I don't even yeah. think it's being part of PAL, but like all these people were sent there to talk about climate change, but it's like, what's the carbon impact of like sending all these people to run a race in the mountains there versus just say having like a Zoom call or or something? Yeah, I, I had um, two, two good friends uh, that are, both PAL members go to that Bhutan race, uh, Nate Bender and, uh, and Luke Nelson. Um, totally. I mean, like we, like I've said before, like they they had an impact, right. They contribute, they um, contributed greenhouse gases and uh, to the, to the atmosphere for sure. Um, their individual impact on the broad, uh, the broad scale or the, the global scale is, is tiny. Right. Um, and the I think you have to weigh like, OK, you know, is the is the advocacy that I'm engaging in right now, um, the interactions I'm having with people, the message or the story that I'm getting to tell because I'm, I'm doing this thing uh, worth that impact right now. Um, and so it's the same when PAL sends athletes and uh, media folks and, um, and brand ambassadors to, uh, to DC to, to advocate for certain like climate policies, right? Like there's totally a climate impact for that. And like the benefit of getting good federal policy passed by Congress and passed in the law and, um, is well out, outweighs the cost, right? The, those benefits well outweigh the costs. And, and again, like Neil mentioned this, you know, Powell's very upfront and candid, like we are, we all have an impact. And if the goal is to have no impact on the environment, whether it's climate change or whatever, you know, some other environmental issue, like you're just going to have to stand still and not exist, you know? So like, we're always going to have an impact. We need to take those into consideration. And, um, and as we, advocate and pass better policies and create better systems, um, we can reduce a lot of that individual impact. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, when I when I think about the future that I want on Earth, you know, I, I want us as a, you know, there's 8 billion of us on this planet, and we all have our passions and our loves and things that we want to do. I, I want to envision a future where you can go to that race because that's something that you're passionate about and you want to do and it opens your eyes to the world and is your mode of participating in in the world around you not like this austere existence where you can't where we you know can't live the life that that we want to live on on this planet um 
and so I, I, I would agree. I, I think understanding that those things do have an impact, but again, that the solution is, is kind of in changing our infrastructure, changing where our energy comes from, not lock, necessarily locking ourselves down, right? We tried that as a society <laughs> uh, in, in 2020. I, I'm not sure it went all that great. Like nobody went anywhere. Um, I don't even know if our net carbon emissions went down during that that time. I think maybe that's still <laughs> open open for discussion. Um, but I I don't know. I just I I I picture like a, a world where we get to do these kind of wonderful things uh, that that we're passionate about, uh, including traveling and um, but you know can rely on on energy resources that that enable us as a society to do that. Yeah, but don't, yeah. don't you don't you feel like it's very like hypocritical and like I think it's all of us in the outdoor industry to like say I'm gonna go, I don't know, I'm gonna go to Denali or go to K2 or something, fly across the world, buy a bunch of plastic garbage to do something that essentially is pointless. Like, is that not hypocritical when we could be say putting those resources into like like you were saying, like going to DC and or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think the Bhutan trip is a is a nice example of how like athletes can um, be athletes, uh, travel the world, and have a, a positive impact around this conversation of climate change. And the 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 big, I think, positive result of the Bhutan race, I think, is reminding and connecting people, especially in like North America, to the broader world and reminding them that like climate impacts are not just like isolated to your country or your community and like recognizing that we all in North America in 2023 are probably going to be pretty well suited to deal with the worst climate impacts out there. Poorer countries, indigenous communities, um, countries and areas that don't have the means to deal with drastic, significant, and quick environmental change are going to be the hardest hit. And I think making sure we're telling those stories, we're connecting with those people, reminding ourselves that even though it feels like a million miles away, like those those communities, those humans are not that far away from us. We all share an atmosphere that's not very not very large, right? You know, it's a couple miles high or something, right, Neil? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, we we have to rem to to stay connected to the world. Like this is a worldwide problem, um, and I think the Bhutan trip did a good job of reminding us that there are small countries like Bhutan that are disproportionately being impacted by climate change, um, and at, at, as a result, primarily of richer, wealthier nations. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and yes, like there's an impact there, like could they have used all of that money or that time to go have something with more of an impact? I don't know, like may maybe, right? But none of us are are perfect. Um, and I think we're all trying to do the best that we can um, while not like making, advocating for climate policy, this thing that just, that, that people aren't gonna engage with because it just re requires, um, you know, not enjoying anything in life. So. Yeah, I just thinking of like individual impacts then, like 
like a lot of what we talk about in my podcast generally is about meat and eating food in general. Like, yeah. like I'm really big into diet. I find it really fascinating. Like one, how diverse humans are genetically and like what we can survive on. And it's like, this is kind of off topic, I guess, but it's kind of wild to me to see people that can live like to be 60, 70 years old. And like, they basically just live off like cigarettes and coffee and whiskey. It's like, <laughs> it's like, how is this possible? So it's really fascinating. Like, how resilient the human body is and just like nature is in general. And so, but like just speaking of that though, like there's this huge push in the outdoor industry for like veganism, vegetarianism, because it's supposedly going to save the planet. Then you can talk to people that are more like carnivorous or like omnivores, I guess would be a better term and like regenerative agriculture and how that's actually the real way to like save the planet for, for various reasons, as far as like soil and animal health and plant health and everything. So like, what are your guys' thoughts then about, I guess, diet in general and how that affects the climate? Yeah, it's, it's great. And I, I, one of the things that I like about when the conversation goes here is that it illustrates how remarkably connected every component of the climate and overall ecosystem is food choices that we make actually do have a huge climate impact. Um, and so yeah, it's it's enormous, and it's also um, a way that that people engage with this. I think I think in some ways it's actually the easiest uh, kind of personal choice uh, influence that we have um, in some ways about how much you know meat, in particular red meat, um, in terms of the carbon footprint or the kind of like I was saying earlier, the intrinsic energy, how much um, energy goes into the production of you know that you know, beef burrito versus a chicken burrito versus the veggie burrito um, would be like a really simplistic way to break it, break it down. But um, yeah, it has a, it has a profound impact. Uh, I, I think probably again, though, it speaks to that need for like, like scale, like all of this at the, at the end of the day comes down to, to scale when you have 8 billion people eating every day on, on earth. Um, the systems of agriculture that we have in place uh, end up making a, a huge difference, probably. And it's a little outside of my expertise, so I, I I usually don't go much much further than that. But I Sam, I'd love to hear your input to Derek what what your kind of personal and kind of political kind of perspective yeah. on that is. Yeah. Um, so I actually I have a a master's in environmental science, and I, I worked in kind of agricultural. Uh, settings and I I wrote I kind of critiqued one of the grant programs that I was researching under because the thesis or like the justification for the agricultural research was like we need to increase efficiency so that we can grow more food to feed more people right and decrease our environmental impact but that was just like that was it. That was like the justification for this multi-million dollar like dual institution research project and I was like cool, that sounds great. And if you look at agriculture specifically, like we have increased efficiency enormously uh, since like the 50s and 60s. And 60s. Uh, but we have more and more uh, negative impacts from agriculture than we want um, or than we had before. And if you talk about like, you know, food distribution and uh, food security, we have a lower rate of like malnourishment and 
uh, food insecure folks, but because we have 8 billion people now, there are actually more people that are food insecure than there were back then. So like, this is a great, it's another great example of like efficiency is great. And, and um, eating a vegetarian diet is a lot more efficient from an energy perspective and from a climate perspective. Um, but if that's all we do, then it's not taking into account like net, the net total impact our food agriculture system is having on the world. And so I think, yes, like, does our country eat too much meat? Like, yes. And would we all, if our whole, whole world went to a more plant-based um, uh, diet, would that have an impact? Yes. But, and, and I'm all for making that individual choice. And I try not to buy meat at the store or at restaurants, but I'm also not perfect. I also hunt. Um, and so, you know, I'll eat, um, deer or elk that have, uh, almost no climate impact, right. Cause they're just living out in the mountains here. Um, but that, that alone without changing like the bigger system is not going to solve anything. And so when we're subsidizing and supporting policies that require more, carbon intensive, greenhouse gas intensive, environmentally destructive food practices, we're gonna to continue to see those impacts. And until we change those policies, which are gonna be a reflection of our cultural changes, um, we're, we're not gonna see a whole lot of improvement there. So, I mean, again, like this, you know, we're talking a lot about individual choices, they matter, they're a huge part of this. The bigger piece is the system, systemic changes, the system-wide changes. Um, for how we grow food, how we, what we eat, um, where we're spending our money and what we're prioritizing. Like how would a, a vegan vegetarian shift actually impact the planet in a positive way? Because like looking at the Midwest, for example, and like in the plains, historically we're just covered in bison. What were there like 30 to 60 million bison or, or buffalo, if you ever want to call American bison or buffalo back in the day. And now there's zero essentially but now it's all monocrop for corn, wheat, and soy. And like the impacts of that, like one environmentally are terrible for various reasons. Like you could look at like fertilizer, for example, or just even the destruction of the soil. Cause there's basically no topsoil left there, but then also like the nutrient density in corn, wheat, soy, and like grain products in general is, is abysmal compared to meat. And that's just like, that's just scientific fact, right? That like, the protein quality from a bison is a lot better than anything you're going to get from soy or corn and wheat. This is not even like a nutrient dense food at all. So like, what would be the benefit of going vegan vegetarian when you can just see all the negative impacts of that on the environment, but then also on your health where like, clearly like, like meat is more bioavailable, like as far as nutrients in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's a totally complete hypothetical to say like, okay, if we all went like to be vegan, like would that be a uh, uh, net positive or a benefit? Like it can be right. You know, under the right circumstances, if we're, if we're all, um, if we're doing all the like vegan diet and vegan agricultural system and there are no dairy farms or, feedlots or rangeland that's being grazed by cattle. I mean, there would be some benefits from that, but if we replace all of that land with high intensity industrial agriculture, there are gonna be huge consequences as well. 
And so, I mean, I think going to a uh, less meat intensive diet um, can have benefits overall, but it, but not by itself, not without talking about, you know, land preservation and conservation or protecting water quality and air quality uh, with those agricultural practices. Because again, just it's a, it's a more efficient, maybe a better technology or, or less intensive technology, but it still has impacts. And depending on the scale, it could have worse impacts. Could be better, could be worse, but it's, it's going to take a lot more than just saying, we're only going to do, you know, uh, vegan kind of agriculture. Is, I, I don't know if you like know the answer to this because I don't either, but like, is it even possible to like feed a planet on like organic vegan diets? Is that even possible? Like just considering <laughs> like the, the really like the low yields you'd get from like organic agriculture versus what we do now. And yeah. then also like these, the massive amount of food a human is required to eat when it's a low nutrient density diet. Um, that's yeah, way outside my expertise for sure. I mean, I can like, you know, think about it and shoot from the hip a little bit, but I, I don't know. I mean, there, uh, yeah, I don't know, probably in some form, I think it's like when you get into the specifics and the nuance and I'm like, well, what would that look like for our world? Like, then I start thinking about like, you know, our economic system of just like infinite growth and we have to use more and consume more and make more as being like like a bigger piece of that question than the technological side of it right like that you know like it's our economics it's our policies and our culture uh and i think if we can address those issues like there could be a utopia where we get to eat our bison and have our greens um, and, a, and a healthy society right there could also be a totally like dystopian version of that. And same if you like went, switched it with like a vegan society, you know, like how we do all of this is really important. And the scale at which we do it is really important. And that's where like the science, the science is critical to figuring all of this out. Um, and we, I like, thanks to people like Neil, you know, we have a really good handle on, on the science behind it, but science doesn't tell us what policies to enact. It doesn't, doesn't build an economic system and tell us how to, how to value, you know, labor and people's inputs and, and outputs. And that's where I think there's a lot of work to do. And which is why POW is not focused. I mean, it's, it's supportive, supporting the science, but it's not focused on going to universities and advocating for research. It's focused on going to DC and advocating for policies um, and political solutions and legal solutions. Yeah. And I, I would, I'm going to steer it back to the energy part for a moment, just because I get this little, you know, it's like your head can explode when you try to like, think about like, what do we need to do? What are all the things that we need to do? And it can lead to this kind of paralysis of like, well, if we do that, like cascading consequences of, of all of these things. Um, that's why I, I just keep coming back to this concept of like, what's the low hanging fruit? What can we do? Like what, what's the positive change that we can like go out and just like accomplish what's sitting in front of us. And I, I come back to the energy infrastructure. There's like things that we can, we can just do. This is like, you know, politicians call this stuff like the shovel ready projects or whatever, but like we can, we can just go out and, and enact these things without everybody having to have this existential lying in bed at night, like what is the optimal diet that I should be eating for planet earth right, right now? 
like let's go and get some of the things that we can do to like combat climate um negative climate consequences right away and and hopefully you know along the way that that scientific or policy consensus really i, I think that's like a really good point the kind of like policy consensus about what can we do to affect like a better outcome will like clearly emerge and then that can become a, a thing that we do but i you know to me it's just kind of the low-hanging fruit is the the renewable energy and the transmission of that energy um and it's kind of like underway and it's happening and so i i, I kind of latch onto it as a way to uh to move to move forward and not not feel totally paralyzed because it's, it's a, all a lot <laughs> and, and it's like more than any one person can be an expert in or know the know the right answer to you know um and that gets back to that imperfection too it's like I don't, I don't know what the right answer is. And, but there, yeah. there are people that, that actually do have like some pretty good, good perspectives on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Like, I think that like that imperfection, like being okay with, with being imperfect is really important. And then like asking yourself like, okay, is, is this change and improvement, you know? And I think if, if you can be okay with being imperfect and not let that keep you awake at night and then just try to do, like a little bit better and make that incremental change um over time like that's what's going to really really have a significant impact try waiting until we figure out the perfect solution you know um with no impacts or whatever is is going to be a losing strategy um and it's going to take trial and error right like i just i i don't know the answer to your question derek right about like is being do we have a moral obligation to all be vegan right now you know um I'm not sure, but like, that's some pretty high level, high level stuff. And, um, probably a more, the answer to that is a lot more difficult than some of the other, um, choices we can make, uh, to reduce our carbon footprints. Um, and if that's the hard one for you, um, then you can do something else, right? Like I don't have an electric vehicle, but my wife and I decided we, we, you know, we were going to have a used car and only have be a one car family. Yeah, and like that was the that was the imperfect choice for us. I still have a car and put gas in it, but um, but we've made other choices to reduce our impact. We we're not vegan. We eat less meat than probably most people do, um, and that was the the imperfect choice for us. And it's better than what we were doing before. We just didn't care or weren't making you know any kind of changes. And they've, they've been easy and fun changes for the most part, right? Like ride my bike a lot, take the bus more than I ever did, I walk. So um, it's, it doesn't have to be like a negative thing. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just a little, just an improvement. Let's talk a little bit more about like imperfection then, because it's like, obviously science is evolving and like, you just look back at history and you always see how like, yeah, you like, we learn new things and science changes and like, that's totally fine and good. Right. Cause we're just trying to get better and like, it's like we're never going to be perfect, but try to be as good as we can. Right. But I think that like, after covid specifically and all this like trust the science thing and like we're basically and i don't want to get like too much into covid but like we found out that a lot of it was just flat out wrong and we were lied to like the government lied to us like the pharmaceutical companies obviously lied to us all these different like data sets are coming out and so i think a lot of people are going to associate that too with climate change where anyone who is a dissenter essentially of climate change is going to be mocked and deplatformed and are just canceled essentially like in, in simplest terms so like 
I guess the question would be like, why should somebody trust these so or trust these scientists if we've been lied to for so long about like just COVID? That's just an easy example. Like there could be other ones. And I I'm coming at this from the angle that like that like we try to do our best. And I think people are coming for the most part from like a good place and want to know what's right and help other people. But at the same time, when things are so politicized and tribalized essentially, like like why should somebody who's a skeptic in say climate change whether it's man-made or or natural even like trust the science or the government about it after being lied to and then being mocked and told you're an idiot essentially yeah it's it's a deep question and i it's funny i think there's this um even in the scientific community i i get mad at my colleagues i think because i think there's this this sense that you deserve trust because like you're a scientist and i i just think it's the furthest thing from the truth like Trust is earned in every environment. We're humans and we interact as humans. Scientists have, you know, a specific language that they use to communicate through like publications and it is an imperfect system and knowledge is revised. And I think, um, yeah, you can really undermine trust really quickly by speaking with, with confidence, um, deplatforming people, not allowing humans to be humans and have the discussions that we need to have to understand things and over asserting our confidence in things is a great way to, to undermine, um, undermine trust. And I, I think the really unfortunate thing is what comes in in the, in the wake of that, in, in my personal opinion is, is even more bad actors that like fill that trust void with maybe even, <laughs> even worse information. Um, in, in the weather community, something like we try really hard to communicate uncertainty, like anybody that uses a weather forecast, right? Like there is a large degree of uncertainty in any weather <laughs> forecast. Like I'm a, I, I make weather forecasts and I also recreate in the mountains. Like I, you know, like <laughs> I know how bad that that forecast can be in that outcome. Um, the, and, and the other part of that, that that comes in, too, is like it's really hard to deal with uncertainty as a human being. Um, and the, like, we don't necessarily have a single definitive answer about, you know, things at, at sometimes we talk about this as like, there's a probability that something's right or something's going to happen. But as humans, we're often stuck with, I, I don't care about the probability. I need to make a single choice like right now <laughs> about what I'm doing. I don't need to make a 30% choice. I need to make one choice about, about what I'm doing. So I don't know. It's something I think scientists need to to think a lot about. Um, but maybe back to kind of the the core of the core of your question about like why should we trust the climate science? Um, I think ultimately it's been vetted over a hundred years. It's like most of the information that I see out there about kind of not having a good understanding of, of climate science is, is coming from people with a genuinely um, a, a, an agenda to, to undermine something, sometimes propagated by the oil industry itself um, about why, you, you know, oh, there's a pause in climate change. That's, that's not happening. It's kind of like whack-a-mole, uh, like on my end as a, as a scientist dealing with it. As soon as we, we can demonstrate scientifically this thing that somebody is questioning why why we're saying climate change is happening when I see this signal over here. And so we put a 
ton of resources into providing a really detailed answer to that question um, and you know establishing factually why this is the thing. As soon as you do that, it's like this other, um, it's kind of like this this gotcha game of like, oh, I'm going to come up with some other thing. And it's just this moving target. And I, I don't really think it's a good faith effort to have a, a genuine conversation about what's going on in the climate system. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of kind of rambling, but I, I guess like I would just agree with the perspective that you're not obligated to trust anybody. Like you should find the sources that you trust the people to deliver information to you that you trust. But I think with that comes a personal responsibility to do some due diligence about who are your sources? Where do you get information from? Do you trust pal? I don't, I don't know. Like I, I actually do. Like I look under the hood and I see the way um, protect our winters generates information and uh, engages in that conversation, embraces that sense of imperfection. And they've become for me like a, a source that I trust, but Again, you got to earn that with anybody that you're engaging with. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of rambling, so maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll kick, it, kick it back to you guys. Yeah. Um, uh, do, you, do you do you guys know who Judith Curry is? I do not. I don't know who Judith Curry is. I don't think so. Uh, so she was she's a climate scientist. She was she worked at some university in Atlanta, I believe. Um, it might have just been University of Georgia. I don't remember exactly. I don't know all the details about her, but. She was a, a climate scientist like at the university and whatever. And she's one of the like, as far as I understand, and I could be wrong about this. Like, I just, I know very little about her, but she was very like, basically like, okay, the climate's changing a lot. This is like, she was an alarmist essentially. And then she looked back at some of her data after being called out on it. And then she was like, oh crap, like I'm wrong. And now she's kind of the opposite where she still believes climate change is an issue, but she doesn't believe a lot of like the initial studies as she has found a lot of flawed data in them. And I don't know any specifics about it, but is this something that I overheard one time? So I was wondering if you guys yeah. have any insights on that. I Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in really quick, Neil, if that's all right. Because I yeah. think like this whole question gets to kind of a foundational, I don't know, like like principle that I try to approach a lot of different aspects of my life around, right? And so like your initial question was like, why should we trust like the scientists? And I, mm -hmm. my short answer is like, I think because the process that science goes through warrants that trust and not like blindly, right? Like, and I think as this example of this, um, this Judith Curry um, scientist is a good example, like went through the scientific process, made, came to conclusions and then subsequently it sounds like discovered that they were that they were wrong and has reassessed her position. Um, you know, science in, in my view is really founded on like this process of, of scientific um, uh, experiment and, uh, and theory. And so it's not just people making an argument without, you know, questioning and data and um, corroboration and um, building off previous research. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, it's, people using all of that to come to a kind of well-reasoned and supportable conclusion. And that's subject to change, you know, like if the climate scientist, if the climate science were to change in the next day or five years or whatever, like my pretty, like, uh, I'm pretty confident about this belief, like the science, the conclusions would change. The policy recommendations would change if the science changed as well, because it's founded not in some end result of like, 
we're doing science so that we can justify these policies, right? It's we're doing science to better understand the world. You know, scientists like Neil are trying to ask questions and get a better, better understanding of what's happening. And they're coming to conclusions on a very well understood uh, uh, process, right? Um, and if those understandings change, then that scientific understanding changes as well. I think your, your um, like COVID analogy like earlier was a, was a good one. It, it hits me kind of hard because like I got elected to city council in 2019 and sworn in in January, 2020. So I went to like two meetings and then COVID hit. And in Idaho, the governor was like, we're not gonna do anything related to COVID. Uh, we're gonna let local jurisdictions decide. So all of a sudden I'm like an elected, uh, elected mem- uh, official and I'm having to figure out what the hell to do about COVID. And I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health expert, right? Like my, whatever, what scientific background I have is in, you know, remote sensing and agriculture. So like, I don't know what is going on. And I, we had lot, we had more meetings. We, we were meeting like twice a week when we usually meet twice a month. And people were pissed about mask mandates or no mask mandates, you know, like, Um, I was being called a fascist and whatever, like it was a really, really tough, like hard time to be trying to make policy decisions around a scientific issue, like a public health issue. And what I landed on for folks was like, listen, I don't know what I'm going to do, but here's the process I'm going to follow. I'm going to listen to our public health district. I'm going to listen to our local emergency medical directors. I'm going to listen to the, to the schools. I'm going to listen to the hospitals and I'm going to listen to the public comment. I'm going to make the best decision I can based on that recommendation. And, and that process was kind of where I founded all of my like decisions and it made it less, less subjective. And like, I'm not just making this up. I'm not just doing something for me. I'm here's what I'm, here's what I'm engaging in the process I'm engaging in. And it'll, that process will um, determine the result. And so I feel like even though people dis- some people disagreed with me, it, I don't think it was because they couldn't trust me, you know, like, just like with a scientist, like, they're going through a process um, to answer these questions. The result is unknown. Um, and the result uh, comes about from that process. So the reason I, I trust scientists like Neil and, and, and other scientists, whether it's around uh, climate change or my doctor or whatever, is because they've engaged in this, in this process and it should be questioned, but you know, it's, it's yeah. And questioning is definitely part of that process, but I, you know, as a scientist, like when I want to establish a piece of information, I'm going to like write a paper and publish a result. You know, I think normally I, I need to be able to say that like more than one piece of information supports this. I need to look at this from like many different angles. And I, we've done that with climate. You can, it's like the, you know, a man with, with one watch, like always knows what time it is. A man with two watches, you know, there's going to be some difference in the watches. You don't know what time it is anymore. You, you kind of like lose some certainty. But with the climate system, like we effectively have like 10,000 watches and they all tell us like exactly the same thing, right? We have so many different ways from completely independent um, sources of data, observations, numerical simulations, whether you're an ice core scientist, a fire scientist like myself, an ocean scientist, you've thousands and thousands of people looking at this problem from completely different perspectives, 
from all over the world. And they're all coming to the same conclusion. I mean, could they all be wrong? Well, sure. But like, that's not very likely that they're all wrong. It, it's extraordinarily likely that all these signals are pointing to to the exact same thing. Um, but yeah, there's, there's really two components of this. There's, there's the science and then there's the communication and there's, there's the policy. And um, I think people within the scientific community kind of understand, have like an inherent understanding of the process that goes through, that we go through to establish information. But if you're not inside that system, you're not seeing it. And things, information sounds like opinion. It sounds like just, this is what I think. This is what I feel about this. I'm I'm looking at the the climate system in this way. Um, and and I think sometimes it's it's hard to to really convey the depth and the rigor that goes into establishing this information. Um, but it, again, it's kind of on us as scientists to to find a way to establish that trust or who your sources of trusted information are uh, for how it how we deliver information and also how how questioning happens like everybody has a right to, to question anything you know but we also have to use like questioning without um using kind of science to to establish like if you if you have an alternate theory about why the climate is changing it, it has to go beyond just an opinion you have to be able to demonstrate that that's actually the thing that would be changing the climate and then we can test that and go through that process and say, no, without a doubt, you know, it is not the change in the sun's output. It is not the change in these cyclical patterns that we know earth goes through. We can track and measure these. We know exactly when they, they occur and how they occur. We're looking at something different and here's why, and here's how we know it. We know it because we measure the carbon dioxide. We measure the energy leaving through the top of earth's atmosphere. We can like see the chunk of energy that's not escaping you know, we can measure the ocean heat content. There's just a thousand different ways that we can come to the same conclusion. So for me, it's about the highest confidence thing that we have right now is that humans are causing Earth's climate to warm. And, and the mechanism for that is the excess of carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere. It's interesting, like just talking about questioning things, because I feel like that is science is to like to question things, right? Like you you have an idea and you're going to like, okay, I'm going to challenge this idea. But it's also interesting, like, I don't know, like the more I ever question things, like not necessarily climate, but just things in general, it's like people just want to like just go berserk and be like, hey, you're insane for questioning this because the experts said this. But then it's like, well, the experts have been wrong a lot of times and right a lot of times. Yeah. But like, it's just really interesting, this climate that we live in of people that they just kind of like read something and that becomes their truth. And then the second you question, they get offended and don't want to even discuss it. Like they'll shoot you down, like and not to just like keep reverting back to COVID, but that happened a lot during COVID with like people on both sides of the the aisle there, and like it was just really sad because we couldn't have a real discussion about things, and that probably would have made things a lot better. And like I don't know, like I'm sure it sucks to be city council and have to deal with COVID. Like no matter like what your thoughts are on it, like not to make this a COVID discussion because like that that just be hard because people were so polarized about it. And I feel like with climate, yeah. it's the same thing where like if you question anybody on either side of the camp then you're immediately demonized by those people and this has become very political too for whatever reason which is really sad because there needs to be more open discussion about it and to look at the things and realize that we're all flawed in a lot of ways and like we can all do better and we can probably all do worse too i guess 
Yeah. I mean, I think they're like on a bigger picture than just like climate change, COVID, whatever you want. Like we're at a point, I think, in our like culture or world where like engaging with nuance is really, really hard, you know, and like like asking questions and and engaging and trying to like get a better understanding about some subject is is kind of a really touchy subject because if you don't ask the right question like you're right yeah you can be vilified for asking the wrong one or even questioning something and i think there's a lot more room um for improvement in our culture and how we like we engage with nuance and we we meet people where they are and we say like yeah um you know like i understand your question and like you know, here are my thoughts about it and not try to directly jump to like, you know, how could you ask that? Like, or it's so black and white, you know, like none of this is black and white, like the world's not black and white. And so there are always going to be, um, there's always going to be nuance around these tough issues, especially when they, when they have impacts on like how we live our life, you know, like climate change has an impact on how we recreate, you know, how we make our, make our money, where we live, um, our health, right? Whether it's air quality or whatever. And so, and there's nuance, there's going to be tons of nuance there. And that's why like a conversation like this, where we can ask tough questions and we can say, I don't know, or I know a little bit, or like, no, like there's a pretty strong consensus here and you, and, uh, and here's why, or whatever it might be like, that's really, really important for conversations like this. And I will make a quick plug, Derek, for like POW's resources. There's this like Crux Academy on POW that has a bunch of like climate science modules and policy modules. And so like any of your listeners, you like want to go see more of the specific information or specific uh, like science or data or policy that POW is working with, like that's where to go. Um, and you can spend a lot of time on that, on, on the POW website, um, educating yourself and coming up with more questions and like hopefully critical ones and, um, and keep, I'll keep learning and I'll keep getting a, better understanding for how to how to make like I don't know the planet our environment our world a better place to live in because like we're all approaching this from I think that perspective right like everyone wants to live in a place where we can you know breathe clean air and drink clean water and ski and run and play and be safe in the outdoors um so if we if we can like understand people are coming from that like starting point we all want to want generally kind of the same thing it's, it's easier to have those conversations yeah definitely like i i totally agree and i guess we're kind of going long now i was going to be an hour originally i just like looked okay. at the time i was like i thought it was 1108 not 1138 right now um <laughs> but just to kind of wrap up here and this could be like a maybe a long question but like let's just talk about finances and funding like one like obviously as a scientist like you're not just out there working for a minimum wage, like whatever, you're not working at McDonald's just to like pay for your funding or, or for your um, research, for example. But like, yeah. where's the funding come coming from for a lot of this research? Is it all like government grants? And then the second question would be to like, where's POW getting their funding? And like, where are those resources going? Because I know like, with a lot of like, like advocacy groups and nonprofits and stuff, like this one always like sits out in my head is like, remember the, was it like Coney or something back like in the early was it 2000s or something it was like some big like like I don't know African group where like 
they raised all this money and it was really trendy for a long time or for a few years anyways. But then they actually disclosed all their finances and like 90 plus percent of it was just like going to them, like going on vacation and buying new computers and crap. So I guess like, like I'm not like accusing like pal of anything necessarily, but like, where does dare like, you ask that question? Derek? <laughs> <laughs> where, where do donors like, where does their funding go? Because like, I personally, like I've seen a lot of nonprofits just like waste money and like, and plus knowing that like, if a nonprofit fixes the problem, they're putting themselves out of a job. So like, and then like, I have friends that work in nonprofits that have told me that specifically that like, oh, we can't fix the problem because then I'm jobless. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> like you solve a problem and then suddenly you have a new problem, which is you trying to survive again. But um, like, so where's the funding going for PAL? And maybe you guys can answer this separately. And then like, where's your funding coming from? Like, say for climate research. And are yeah. they potentially bad actors like you referenced in the past? Yeah, I can, uh, Sam, if you want, I can start with the the kind of fundamental science, like where the funding comes from. Um, I mean, ultimately it's taxpayer money, like at the, you know, at its core. And so most of the climate research um, is going to be sponsored by kind of a few different primary agencies in the U.S. Uh, one is the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation has a pretty kind of wide open mission, they do what I call like fundamental science, you can kind of propose uh, through a competitive grant process, really any sort of research that you want. And it doesn't have to be tied to, you know, any, any specific um, kind of program or anything like we just want to understand the world that we live in. I think that's kind of like the National Science Foundation's mission, like, we live in this extraordinary complicated world. Um, you know, where how does it work? And a typical grant, since I, I think people want to know this, they want to know like how much money are, are we talking about here? I think a typical grant from the National Science Foundation is probably like three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars for three to five years. And that's going to support um, a researcher like myself, probably one to two graduate students. And then literally 50 percent of that money goes to uh, the universities that, that you work in to pay for putting the lights on. Um, the, the buildings, the labs, the equipment and stuff like that. So, you know, at the end of the day, what does that come down to? It's like, you know, a stipend for a student of maybe something like $2,000 a month, which is, which is great. If you're a student, um, you know, having a way to support your, um, your education and your research, but certainly nobody's getting rich on, on that, that, um, that money right now, you know, most of our students are struggling to pay rent. Um, and then two other agencies that I'll, that I'll mention, uh, one is the department of energy, uh, does a lot of climate modeling. How's the climate going to evolve in the future? And there is some motivation there, which is to understand, you know, what does the U S need to do in the future to have like a sustainable economy? So we need to know what the, the future climate is going to look like. What's our energy portfolio going to look like? Um, and then another big one, as far as just fundamentally what's happening in the Earth's climate system is NASA. Um, NASA is putting satellites into space and has all sorts of sophisticated instruments that allow us to make uh, these fundamental measurements. How much energy is going into the system? How much energy is coming out? The imbalance between those, that's what drives the warming of the Earth's climate system. Um, so NASA plays a really fundamental role. Um, so th those are kind of the big players, I would say, in the the funding of, of climate research. Um, 
and yeah, can can dive into more more details uh, if you want. But yeah, always good to follow the money and think about like where's the information coming from, who's 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 driving that forward. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, like oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead, Derek. I was going to jump in about Pal, but let me know when you're ready. All right, I was just going to say like I think the counter argument to that could be like, well, the government has an agenda, and so if the government's funding this, then how can we trust it? And I think there's obviously a huge mistrust in government. Nobody really trusts Congress or anybody these days, right? Because yeah. like not, yeah, not to get off topic, but like, so like with that sort of funding and coming straight from the government, like, like why, like why should I trust that over, say, I don't know, like an independent scientist or an independent researcher? Yeah, I mean, I think I I would argue that researchers are still very much independent um, in in that system, obviously. Yeah, you work in in an ecosystem that um, there are other ways you can you can fund research. Um, you know, I through various charitable foundations um, and nonprofit organizations that work at various like the Nature Conservancy would be like an example um, of of an organization that might support some fundamental research on especially ecosystem uh, research. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess like it at some level, like we're accountable to the public, you know, like I like what's the backstop for that? I mean, the public is the backstop for it. Like it's our taxpayer money. Um, you know, we vote for, you know, who we elect. And, you know, ultimately that's that's the system that that we work within. I'm not like really sure how how one would construct an alter completely like independent alternative model to that that would allow you to have the the level of like i can't watch a satellite into space uh through crowdfunding right like uh, i don't know cool. maybe elon musk i don't know that i would want like elon musk to be driving the show here but uh you know may maybe there's other ways of, of supporting kind of like really really independent research but like I think at the end of the day, like it's a really good system because um, there's a lot of independence and the the program managers, the people that actually dole out that money, they're not elected officials, they're scientists, uh, they're engaged in the scientific community, um, and they're going to direct that money to people that are that are doing good science. Um, and it's it's like a peer group, right? Peer review is literally the way that works. We all judge. It's not just like one person deciding where the where the money goes. Like I participate in reviewing other people's proposals for what sort of science needs to be done. Um, and so it's a community, just like you know, the town council, you know, reflects uh kind of like some will of, of the people. Um, there there really is like a, a grassroots component for the way the system works. The money comes from the top down. But the decision making is bottom up from from scientists themselves. Uh, I would like to think that most of us are, are pretty independent, open minded people. That's kind of fundamental to it. But uh, but yeah, it is a system. You know, it is a government run system for the most part. So that's, yeah. that's definitely there. I, yeah, I just want to point out, I mean, like, like independent researchers, like someone's got to fund it and there are private research you know, organizations out there. I mean, they're most well known for, you know, like um, pushing forward science that says smoking isn't <laughs> isn't bad or like they're funded by oil companies to say climate change isn't real. So, I mean, like, like government scientists, 
private scientists, like nonprofit, like we all have our biases, you know, and, and there's no system that I'm aware of where you can just completely get rid of, of those biases. But I think the process in place for, for the research kind of ecosystem that we have right now um, is pretty robust. It's not perfect. There, you can go find examples where bad research has been published and it's been retracted um, and there will probably be more. Like nothing is perfect, but, um, but it's, a, it's a pretty solid system right now. And I think the disclosures, you know, Neil has a lot of um, obligations to disclose where his funding comes from, disclose conflicts of interest, all, all of those sorts of things. So, um, so yeah, but I also, Derek, I wanted to ask or talk to your question about the protect our winners financials, um, just for a minute. Um, there is a financials webpage on the website. So you can go, um, look up like big picture, kind of where, um, how PAL uses donations and like programs, funding, staff, um, projects, all that kind of, all that stuff. But then they also, um, they, they publish all of their um, IRS tax forms online and then they're audited by like third-party organizations um, as well. And so they have an immaculate record for, um, uh, for their fundraising and their uh, use of uh, resources. Um, you can go, I think a Google search will bring up most of those IRS forms if you wanna like dive into the actual numbers and how much money they're fundraising and where it's going towards. Um, but you know, it's, it's going towards staff. It's going towards getting people to DC to, um, to advocate for policies. Um, it's having, uh, uh, the teams like the athlete Alliance met in May, the annual summit is, uh, later this month, uh, making sure that we're all talking to each other and staying connected. Um, so yeah, it's all, it should all be there publicly available. And, um, and if it's not, there are contact forms um, or contact uh, information, or I'm sure you could ask for that uh, for specific stuff from from POW um, staff members. Yeah, it'd be super cool. And I definitely, like, I wasn't, like, accusing by any means of just, like, no, no, no. things go. Because, like, there's just no, so man. many groups, and it's just interesting to see, I guess, where all the, the money goes. It's important. Absolutely. Listen, I, I'm a lawyer by profession. I've represented nonprofits and individuals. I've seen a, a wide spectrum of um, how organizations are run. I mean, I'm completely biased because I'm an Athlete Alliance member, um, but I would not be an Athlete Alliance member or an athlete team member um, with PAL if I didn't think they were running a tight ship. I mean, it's, there's nothing in it for me um, to be part of an organization that's sketchy or wasting people's money. I think, they're, I think they're making an impact. I think they're doing a good job. I love the people I get, a, I get to work with and volunteer with. And um, yeah, it's a great group. I'd say I love it when I see like POW Alliance posts that they're in Washington, like that to me, like that's money well spent that trip, right? Go to the halls of power, make the voice heard in those, those locations. There's a lot of other organizations that I don't actually see that step happening. Um, it's so, like, I, I feel like every, pretty much every time I pull up instagram or social media like i see some level of engagement with the power and it just kind of makes me smile every time because it's like that again that it's you gotta you gotta go to the halls of power in in this case to to make a difference in, in some of these things yeah definitely well i think we should probably wrap it up now we've been going for <laughs> for way too long it took too much of you guys' time but um okay. like, wh where can people look you guys up and um connect with you or just follow you on, on online 
I'm at um, Sam Linnet, uh, S-A-M-L-I-N-N-E-T uh, on Instagram. And that's probably the best way to connect with me if you want to send a message or see what I'm up to. Awesome. Yeah, people can get in touch with me uh, either through the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, you can find, if you Google my name, so my name is Neil Laroe. The last name is L-A-R. EAU. Um, I've got a, a website on the university page, but I'm also really active on um, the site formerly known as Twitter, um, sharing kind of real-time interpretation and updates of wildfires as, as they unfold um, in the Western United States. So that's uh, at NPLaroe um, on, on Twitter. So always, I'm always happy to engage with people on social media. I get the, the best questions you know, from people. It's a real learning opportunity, I think. It's really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of us, myself included, kind of like hate on social media all the time, but really it is a good way to connect with people and exchange ideas if you do it in an appropriate way. Totally. It's like one of the most democratic like forms of information exchange that like I know of. It's like I can publish papers that like five people will read, but I can <laughs> put things on Twitter and like, a million people are going to see this thing. It's, it's kind of amazing. For sure. Well, thanks again, guys, uh, for your time. Um, we'll wrap yeah. it up here and. Uh, end the conversation and get on with our days great thanks Derek. Derek. thanks Derek. yeah thanks, thanks guys yeah yep. thanks let's uh talk soon yeah all happy right. to you. all right we'll see you